Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor. The First Timothy chapter one. Please check us out on the internet at FBC. Beginning in verse one. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads: Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and to elevate her concept of God until it once more, or until it is once more worthy of Him. So last Sunday we finished up a series on the Gospel of Mark titled Following Jesus, a series of 88 sermons that we took to answer the question, what does it look like to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And then the week before that, we actually finished up a short little sermon series that we interjected in there on the five solas. And in that series, we talked about the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ because as we know from history, the church over time had drifted away from the central message of the gospel of Christ. And it was, but it was during the Reformation by God's sovereignty and His providence that the light of the gospel began to shine forth out of the darkness once again. And God's word took its rightful place as the final authority for all Christians and for all churches. And a new era of the church began, an era of the Protestant church, an era in which the gospel has spread all over the world. In fact, we are right now in this room doing the things we do because of what happened 500 years ago. Now, with all of that, it is fitting for us, now that we have wrapped up those two sermon series, that we begin a new series titled, First Timothy, the Plan for the Church and for Life. You see, as disciples who follow Christ, we are inextricably linked to the local church. I want you to understand that. If you were in Christ, you were inextricably linked to the local church. The church has no understanding of Christians who live in solitary lives. The church has, I mean, the Bible has no understanding at all of Christians who live alone by themselves with just their Bible sitting on a mountaintop. Christians always and forever have been connected to and inextricably linked to the local church. And as a local body of believers... As people who gather together to worship God, we must keep our eyes fixed on the centrality of the gospel. Otherwise, we ourselves run the risk of those who have gone before us, the tendency to drift away, to drift like the church has in centuries past. In fact, if there's anything, if there is anything that this last year during this lockdown has taught us is the truth that much not all, but much of the church at large is already drifting. It's evident. We can, we can see it. It's already drifting away from the central message of the gospel and the centrality of Christ and the centrality of the Scriptures. The truth is we already know that many people who profess to be Christians, who profess Christ, are drifting away and moving away from gospel preaching Right? They move away from gospel preaching and they're moving towards those who preach a softer, gentler, kinder, more culturally relevant kind of message. 
The truth is a lot of people today do not want to be convicted of their sin. People do not want to hear about the the cost of their atonement. People don't want to hear or don't want to acknowledge the reality of God's wrath against sin, and they don't want to acknowledge the reality of hell. In fact, if there is one truth that people do not want to talk about, it is that one. People don't want to hear about what the Bible says about marriage or about gender or about the unborn. In this postmodern world, people don't want to hear dogmatic statements about who God is and what that means about them in light of who He is. Instead, people want to be entertained. People want to experience an uplifting message. People want to come and consume worship service like they consume a concert or a movie. People want to be made to feel comfortable. People want to be told that it's all going to be okay no matter what they're like or no matter what they're doing. Some people want to be told that their faith and that the church itself is about them. Some people want to be told that God exists to make them happy and to solve all their problems. Some people want to believe that if you put your faith in God, that He will make all of your problems go away. In fact, if you really believe, and I mean really, really sell out to believe, some people believe that, that if you just really are all in for God, then He will give you all your heart's desires. That He will make you rich, that He will make you healthy and wealthy and, and happy. And so many congregations, so many churches, in an attempt to be relevant, in an attempt to to draw people in, in an attempt to connect with those people, in an attempt to win them over, they have simply become what what these people are asking for. A place where people feel good about themselves. A a place for people to come and be entertained. In fact, so there's a megachurch, a megachurch that probably all of you have heard of before, one of the largest ones in the country. And I was just looking at their website just to kind of check and see if they're even open. And... uh, and, and so I see this, this caption, there's a big button that says, join us in person. I guess they're starting to have in-person services, and you got to make a reservation, and they already are all booked up. But anyway, but, but the caption that read underneath this was just really interesting to me. It says, come and join us in person, experience great music, and a helpful message. What is, what is this church saying? Yes, that's right. Come and join us because it's about you. Come and join us because it's about how you feel. Come and join us and be comfortable. Come and join us and be entertained. Come and enjoy the great music and listen to a message that will be helpful to you, a message that will make you feel better about yourself so you can have a better week. Now hear me. I want you you to understand what I'm saying here. I want you all to be comfortable, okay? That's why we have padded chairs and not them old wooden pews anymore, okay? Right? That is why we have a cooler for the summer and a heater for the winter. That's why we have ceiling fans that you guys fight over to turn on and turn off, right? right. I want you to be comfortable, right? And, and, and I want you to understand, I personally think that this worship team that we have, that God has blessed us with, does a great job every single Sunday. And I think that the music that they sing is wonderful. I'm telling you, like, I can't even, I can't stop and think about it. I'll start crying again, Right? And, and, and I believe and I hope with all my heart that the preaching of God's word would encourage you and strengthen you and give you hope as you walk out of here. 
But understand, that is not the focus of our church. The focus of our church isn't to give you a great experience. The focus of our church is to come together and to worship the one true God. That is why we're here. But so much of the church at large today is about all the things that the crowd is asking for. And in the process, the centrality of the scriptures has been replaced with pragmatic church growth strategies. And the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, has been replaced with TED Talks and motivational speeches. Ten ways to have a happier life. And the net result has been, as we look around, is a theologically anemic church with no real purpose in the world except to entertain people and to make them feel better about themselves. By the way, that's one of the reasons why so many churches today are still not open. Because there's not a reason for them to be. That's the truth. If all the church is is an entertainment venue, if all it is is a social organization or simply a charity, and if all the church has to offer is motivational advice and uplifting sound bites and good music, then there's not a reason to open the church back up at this point. There's not a reason for that. Because here's the thing. You can get all that somewhere else. You can get all of that online. You don't have to go to church to have those things. That's why so many churches are not open today. That's why so many people have not even come back to church. Because somewhere in the process... The church has lost its identity, even to the point that many people who even identify as Christians agree with the government's assessment that the gathering together of God's people is not essential. That's where we are in the world around us. Many people, many of those who, who, who don't want to come back to church at large, agree that the gathering of God's people is not essential the same way that Walmart is essential. That's a startling, stunning assessment. And that's why so many people push back against the church when, when they want to reopen. That's why so many people push back when churches say that we're going to treat each other like intelligent grown-ups who are capable of making their own intelligent decisions. People push back on churches who say, you know, we're not going to tell you that you can't hug anymore. Right? They push back on people, on churches who say, it's okay for you guys to be near one another and to comfort each other. It's okay if, if you decide you want to wear a mask and they don't. People push back on churches who say that, that our congregants are intelligent grown-ups who are capable of making their own decisions for themselves. Many people who claim to be Christians even now don't see the gathering of God and for corporate worship, and, and for fellowship as an essential part of their life. In fact, they see it as an optional part of life nowadays. I've mentioned before, Pastor James Coates of Grace Life Community Church in Edmonton, Alberta. He was arrested, and he spent five weeks in jail because he continued to open his church and gather his congregation together for worship and for the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel. He spent five weeks confined in jail, in chains with real criminals, 
In fact, in, during his car, uh, incarceration, the Alberta authorities released several violent sex offenders. They had to make notice of that publicly. They released him early because of COVID and because of overcrowding. But they decided to keep the pastor locked up because he, in their minds, represented a greater public safety threat than these sex offenders. It's unreal. Now, due to the public pressure and to the pastor's legal team, Pastor Coates was released. He still faces one charge. But this last week, just since last Sunday, a few days after their Easter celebration, the Alberta Health Service, along with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, went to the church early one morning this week and erected fences around the entire Grace Life Church property, effectively seizing the property and barring the congregants and the elders from the church altogether. This is ongoing right now as of this moment. Now, once you understand, this move by the government, that does not surprise me. Right? The government pushing back on the church, that doesn't catch me off guard. Caesar is a jealous God, and I use the little g when I say that. Caesar does not want to share power with anyone. Look at China. So it didn't surprise me that they would put up fences, and it doesn't surprise me that they would arrest him. What surprised me, though, what surprised me is how much public support the government has for this. How many people are so terrified of a virus with a 99.97% survivability rate that they are in favor of the government closing the church? People were saying that this guy should spend his life in prison. What? They, they, they called the church itself a cesspool. They even said that he was a leader of a, of a cult. Now, believe me, I've read his statement of faith. He's an Orthodox believing Christian just like us. The same almost exact statement of faith. A couple of minor details, difference when it comes to like eschatology, but that's it. Nothing, nothing. Right? And, and, and if you listen to his his sermons is a man that is in love with the Word of God and protecting and loving his people. But they call him a cult leader. And they, call, and they say that grace life right, is, it should be persecuted and prosecuted and sued for what they have done. These people are celebrating the government seizing somebody's property and celebrating the forced closure of a church. That just, again... You don't have to like them, but I don't know anybody that's really that in favor of the government. And what's worse is many of these people call themselves Christians. In fact, some who claim to be Christian, ministers of the gospel actually supported this move. In a public release written by Dr. Greg Glatz, the, the, uh, the, United, uh, the Knox United Church in Calgary had this to say about the closure of Grace Life Church. He writes this, he goes, This morning, AHS, or the Alberta Health Service, with the assistance of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, shut down Grace Life Church. This is good news. That's his words, right? And, then, and he says, the bad news is that it took so long for AHS to act. And then he goes and says, AHS issued an order on December 17th, required Grace Life Church to comply with the restrictions ordered by Dr. Dina Hinshaw, Alberta's chief medical health officer, it took nearly four months for AHS to enforce the orders and have that have been, reg, been flagrantly, arrogantly, and repeatedly ignored by the church. 
This delay put hundreds, if not thousands, of lives at risk. Notice what he says. It put hundreds and thousands of lives at risk. The primary cause of this serious health risk, of course, is not AHS, but Grace Life Church itself. Under the guise of religious freedom, the church has pronounced itself exempt from public health regulations and ignored the biblical imperative to obey governing authority. And they cite Romans 13, 1 and 2. And then he closes with this line. He says, today, judgment has finally been rendered. Too bad it took so long. There's a lot of pastors that I don't agree with about a lot of things. I would never write a statement like this. Right? Brothers and sisters, this is how much the church has drifted and is in danger. In fact, the Knox United Church does not have a published statement of faith on their website, but they do have letters of affirmation of every sexual deviancy. And they have made statements on their website that they will basically marry anyone, no matter what the circumstances are. And they will ordain just about anyone in the ministry, those who are even practicing same-sex uh, in, in same-sex relationships and people who are transgender. And even more than that, Knox United Church openly supports the Holocaust of abortion. Right? I want you to think about this. A church supports the killing of unborn children by their own mothers. Just let that settle into your mind for a second. Because here's the thing. Is, we, is, is in Canada today, 23,000 people 23,000 people have died from the coronavirus. That's the, the numbers that have been attributed to that. And I want you to know, I'm saddened for every, the loss of every one of them. But we also know that those numbers you know, don't, re, don't reflect the, the true numbers of the flu deaths because the flu has disappeared this year, right? and other things as well. But 23,000 people have died. But in one year in Canada, in just Canada, in one year, 85,000 babies will be aborted every single year in Canada alone. That's over three and a half times as many lives being snuffed out. But the leadership at Knox United says that Grace Life is a danger to the lives of other people and that they should remain closed, but they don't think that the local abortion clinic is a danger to anyone and all of those should remain open. Hypocrisy is stunning. And the rhetoric is even worse. Right? A pastor from another church stated that... that that he was glad Grace Life was closed because the churches are supposed to be a place of healing and not places of death. The rhetoric is absolutely just ridiculous. As if churches who decide in their own interest and the interest of their people to meet and love on each other and to take care of each other, that somehow they're anti-healing you know, healing and they're pro-death. Come on. As if congregates suffering alone and, and suffering from depression and anxiety and living in fear, that somehow that's a better alternative than the body of Christ gathering together for corporate worship and, and assembling together and loving on each other? The lack of grace and genuine respect for other people's sincere decisions to do what they think is best for their congregations it, by so many people calling themselves ministers is disheartening. The fact of the matter is, is we have maintained relationships with lots of different pastors who at different times have had to make different decisions than us. And we all respected one another because we all understand that they are called by God to do a job and they're to the best of their ability doing what's right for their people. But it's disheartening to see when you don't go along with the cultural line how fast people jump on you. 
The church has drifted. But understand, it's not just Canada. It's also here in America and even in our own state and even in our own community, by the way. Some who call themselves Christians have, have become convinced that gathering together for God, you know, together, the gathering of God's people together in person for worship is just simply not an essential activity for life. They believe that it's, it's dangerous, in fact, to gather and should be avoided. And many people believe that the church can do all that it's supposed to do and that it can fulfill its mission that God ordained for it to in this fragmented, socially distanced world, right? And they can do it all online rather than gathering in person. Again, the church has drifted, and many people call themselves Christians have also drifted. But understand, brothers and sisters, the root of the problem that we're facing, I want you to hear me on this. The root of the problem that we're facing is not the government. It's not the government. The root of the problem is not the culture. The root of the problem is not even the media. The root of the problem is that most Christians have an unbiblical view of the church. That's the problem. That's the root of the problem. You see, the root of our problem is not political. The root of the problem is not medical. It's not cultural. Our problem is theological. This is the same with many of the problems that most Christians have in every area. It's typically a theological issue. Too many Christians, including too many pastors, have a sub-biblical view and a sub-biblical theology of the church. Too many people don't understand what the church is, what the church is for. Too many people look at the church and the mission of the church and the leadership of the church from a man-centered point of view rather than a God-centered point of view. That's why so many people say the things that they say. You can see where they're coming from by listening to their words. You don't need to, to meet in the church to be a Christian. Where two or three are gathered in my name, then there's the church. By the way, one of the most misquoted text in all the Bible. You can just worship at home. It's just like being with your congregation. Attending church online is just as beneficial as attending in person. Right? Why do you need to go to church? Jesus never preached in a temple. Did you ever open your Bible? Okay, just checking. I mean, I actually heard that. Somebody said that to me this week. The early church didn't even have a pulpit. They didn't even have a stage. Like, that somehow is relevant, right? Obeying health orders is loving your neighbor, but attending church in person is selfish and hateful. All of these things I've heard. And I can go on and on, and I think you know what I'm talking about here. But the truth is the root of all of these conversations and the root of all of our arguments that are taking place around us is the same root. Most Christians don't have an adequate biblical theology of the church. Right? If there's one thing that this pandemic has revealed for us, it is that truth. People simply do not know enough about the doctrine of the church. And that's why there's so many that drift away and why so many people who see the gathering of the church as a non-essential, dangerous activity. That's why right now, though, is a perfect time for us to begin this new series on the letter of 1 Timothy, because we really need to grow in our understanding of our theology of the church. And, and 1 Timothy is considered to be just about by everyone to be the handbook for building and running the church. 1 Timothy is the foundational book you know, in the Bible that helps us to understand the theology and the practice of the church. You know, do you want to know what the, what the church is really about? 
Do you want to, to know, you know how God views the church? Do you want to know how the church is to be operated? Read 1 Timothy. That's what it's there for. And that's what we're going to do together. We're going to walk through 1 Timothy together. It's time for our church family, for us to, to walk through this. Now that we've gone through discipleship, as we've gone through the book of Mark, and now that we have walked through the, the, through the centrality of the gospel in the solas, it's time for us to dive in and really study the doctrine of the church. And I mean really study it out. Because I believe that all of us, I mean all of us, have something to learn here. I think this is an area that all of us can grow in. In fact, I believe that all of us will bring with us assumptions about the church that don't really come from the Scriptures, but rather have come from our own experience or our upbringing or even some of our traditions and even maybe some of our personal preferences. And I believe that all of us have attitudes about the church that will miss the mark. And I believe that all of us have assumptions that are not quite accurate. And I believe that many of us have habits that we bring to the church that are simply not honoring to God and His design for the church. And I believe, right, I believe that this is where we need to be at this point in time. We need to grow in our understanding of what the church is. We need to grow in our understanding of what the church is for. We need to grow in our understanding of what the church is supposed to do and how we are supposed to behave and act in the church and how we're supposed to live as a part of the church. And I'm going to be honest with you. My aim is always to tell you the truth. My aim is not to play to your feelings or your preconceived ideas. My aim is to take the scriptures and show them to you and tell you the truth, which means some of what we're going to cover, some of these areas might challenge you. I know that they have for me. Some of these things might challenge your assumptions. Some of them might challenge your opinion and may even challenge your emotions in some places. In fact, some of what Paul says might be even hard to hear. Just look at chapter 2. There's stuff in there. That's really difficult to work through and talk about. But understand, I love you enough to tell you the truth. I love you enough to tell you the truth because that's what we need. We need truth. We don't need to be coddled. We need the truth because we need to know the truth about God's church so that we can worship Him and honor Him in the way that He calls us to. And that right there, brothers and sisters, I think is where the world is missing the mark. We forget that worship is for Him and designed by Him, and there's a way that's appropriate that we worship Him, and there are ways that aren't. We need to keep our eyes centered on Christ as not to drift away, as so many churches have of late. Now, why First Timothy? Well, because I have people have already asked me that. Why First Timothy? I mean, people think about First Timothy and they go, huh, of all the books I want to read, that one's not it, right? I mean, seriously, when people start reading the Bibles, where are they going to go? They're going to go to the Gospels. They're going to go to the, the yeah, the, the Psalms, Proverbs, right? You're going to go to the book of Acts. You want to learn about the church. Romans, right? I mean, that's one that everybody wants to tackle, by the way. That's the next book we'll teach through. You know, but I won't take six years like John Piper, okay? I promise. Right. And like you said, we'll go to the, they'll go to the Old Testament and they'll go to Proverbs, they'll go to Psalms. Maybe even they'll go to, the, to, the, uh, to, to Genesis because there's a lot of crazy stuff in there, right? 
But people don't think, like, I'm going to read 1 Timothy. In fact, some people will say they don't read 1 Timothy because they don't read the pastoral epistles because they're not pastors, right? The pastoral epistles were written to several pastors. They weren't written to churches. Romans was written to the church in Rome. Titus was written to the Titus pastor, I mean, to the pastor Titus. Most people reason, I'm not a pastor, so I don't really need to study those things. That's, those are for church leaders. So why would I preach through this letter together with a congregation here on Sunday morning especially? Well, there's a number of reasons for that. Number one, the first one is because of what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In the beginning of verse 16, Paul says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and because of, it, it's, because of that, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, rec- for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, the reason, first reason why we would, we would go through 1 Timothy is because it is Scripture, and as such, it is profitable to teach and train us in all the things of God. That's the first reason why we would go through it. It's it is Scripture, and every bit of that has something for us. It has something to teach us, and it's profitable to grow us. But number two, 1 Timothy is about the church. And the thing that you need to realize is if you're a Christian, then that means you were part of the church. And because of that, Paul talks about in this letter, all that he talks about affects you. Why? Because you're part of the church. Don't get me wrong. Now, I want you to hear me. As a pastor, this has been an indispensable part of my, of my theology. And there are things I have gleaned from this that probably won't even make sense to you, right, as a pastor that, have, that apply to me. But I want you to know every single one of the texts that are in this letter have something to do for you. And then number three, not only are we members of the church, we as the followers of Christ are called to follow where Christ leads. And let me tell you where Christ is leading all of you. He's leading all of you into the ministry. Every single one of you, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you want want it to be this way or not, if you are a Christian, if you are called by God, you belong to Christ, if you are His, you are called into the ministry. Every one of you. Don't believe me? Turn me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul makes this really, really, really clear beginning in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul writes this, And He, he's talking about Christ, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors, and teachers, and He gave them for a reason. What was that reason? To equip the saints for something. What? What does that say right there? For the work of ministry. That itself is also for the building up of the body of Christ. And that has a goal itself that we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, that we all grow up to maturity together to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we are no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves of waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather that we, all of you in your ministries, are speaking the truth and love to one another, that we all grow up in every way into Him, Jesus, who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
right? Now, there's a lot to unpack here, right? But, but what you need to see is this. All of us as believers, every one of you has a responsibility to minister to and build up the body of Christ. Not just your pastor. Not just the deacons. Every one of you is called into the ministry. Every one of us is in the ministry, whether it's preaching or teaching or singing or cutting the grass or sweeping the floors, right? Or setting up meal trains for people who, have, who need help or checking up on, on neighbors you haven't heard from or running the Boron Kids Outreach Program or VBS or passing out food or whatever it is. Each one of you, no matter what it is, has been uniquely equipped by God to participate in the ministry in some fashion. And so you too are to participate in the building of the body of Christ. That is, by the way, is the good works that you were saved for. Remember, Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, 8, 9, and 10, you're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, right? Not of works, not so that you may boast, right? That you were created in Christ Jesus for what? For the good works that God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. These are the good works that, that Paul is talking about. All of us are called into ministry. Right. So this letter is also then about you and for you. But the fourth reason why I would preach through this letter is because 1 Timothy really reflects many of the challenges that we face today. What I, amazes me over and over again as we come to the Scriptures is how relevant the text always is. We preach through Mark, you guys who've been with me for that whole two and a half years, how many times did we get to a text that was exactly what we needed to hear for the time that we were in, right? God, in His grace, has made a point to draw us here at this time. You see the letter, you see Paul wrote this letter to Timothy because Paul recently left him in the city of Ephesus as a pastor for that church and to put things back in order because the truth is the things in Ephesus were not so good at that time. What you need to realize is that Ephesus was a church that Paul himself planted and started, right? Uh, uh, um, Priscilla and Aquila had actually um, went there first and began to evangelize. And then as, as there became a movement, Paul planted a church there and built leadership. And he pastored that church for like three years. And he built strong leadership in that church. And then he moved on in his ministry, planting other churches around the area. But Paul, before he went to to, to Rome to be imprisoned, he is recorded as warning the Ephesians and saying, you need to keep your eyes on Christ because you can lose this thing. It can get really, really bad. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Notice the warning. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in amongst you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul is telling them, even before it gets here, be careful. Right? The tendency of the church is to drift. It is so easy to get caught up in other things. It's so easy to get caught up with the wrong people and for things to to 
fall apart inside the church. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. The Ephesian church over time lost its focus and eventually put in leadership men who were not qualified to be leaders. And they lost sight of the theology of the church and the importance of qualified leadership and allowed people who were not qualified to take the helm in the roles at church. And the result was began to be an abandonment of the orthodox doctrines as the unqualified leaders began to engage in and dabble in false teachings. That's the pattern. Unqualified leadership leads to bad theology, right? And then that itself has its own consequence because people begin to have experience behavioral issues in the church. False teaching begin to affect how people lived in and out of the church. People began acting in inappropriate ways in the church. Men became quarrelsome and prideful in the church. Women began to dress immodestly. Women began taking roles for themselves that weren't theirs that God didn't ordain them for. And there was a succumbing to the culture of greed around them. People became very materialistic. And to make things worse, the city of Ephesus was in a very huge influential Roman city, and it was a political and economic hub in the Roman world. And they were surrounded by lots of culture and money and art and religious pluralism. In fact, this is one of the greatest features of the, te- of the city was the temple of the goddess Artemis. Right? That was one of the, the seven wonders of the world with this gigantic temple to Artemis. But not only was this city um, religiously plural, it was decadent and licentious. Every form of sexual immorality was practiced in that city, including temple prostitution. And so the church was in a very tough, tough environment. Well, Paul and Timothy visited Ephesus and after Paul's first imprisonment, um, and they found the church had compromised and it was infected with false teaching and become a reflection of the culture. Paul knows that this church needs a strong biblical leader. And what does he do? He decides to leave Timothy there. And they trust him to do what needs to be done to set things right. But understand, this was not an easy task for this very young, timid pastor, right? A church, you know, that faced such big issues, all of which were made worse by the growing tensions with the Roman government at the time, right? There's the extra issue, the fact that Nero was the Caesar, was Caesar, And he was in power, and things were getting worse because Christians were beginning to experience persecution because the emperor and everyone in the Roman government expected all people in the Roman world to bow their knee to him and worship him. Caesar demanded that everyone worship him as Lord, and Christians refused to do so and were seen as enemies of the state and were being persecuted having their stuff taken from them, being arrested, and even losing their lives. In fact, in just a few short years after this letter, Paul's going to write another letter to Timothy, but when he does, he will be in prison. And it will be the last letter he will ever write, because shortly after that, Paul will be martyred. So there's a growing pressure, of Roman governmental pressure. Now, I think we can identify with the Ephesian church for where we are. We live in a pluralistic, decadent culture that is steeped in sexual immorality, and we're facing growing opposition from the culture and government itself. In fact, that issue that we've seen in this pandemic is the government demanding that we unquestionably obey the direction of Caesar, regardless of what the Bible actually teaches us. 
That's why we have seen, even in our own state, the governor of California flex his muscle telling us, number one, you can't meet unless I tell you to. Right? And then when he says you can meet, he starts saying, well, but you can meet, but under the conditions that we set, which means you can't sing. You've been singing for 2,000 years, but you can't sing right now in California. And you can't preach out loud. Come on, imagine that. And you can't take the elements for the Lord's table. Again, something people have been doing for 2,000 years. And you can't be hugging, you can't be touching, and you certainly can't be meeting inside. Caesar has been trying to establish that corporate worship of God is a non-essential event in the life of the church, and that when it can be performed, it's going to be performed in conjunction to its regulations, because Caesar is unquestionably sovereign. That, by the way, is the statement that you make when you say, you just need to obey the law. When people say, we want to meet, and people tell you, you need to obey the law, what you're saying is, Caesar is sovereign. You see, things have not really changed for 2,000 years. The church has been struggling with the same issues for centuries. The church has struggled to remain centered on the gospel. It has, it has struggled to, to not be contaminated by the culture around it, and it struggled not to be controlled by the government or Caesar. In fact, throughout the centuries, we will see the same patterns emerge over and over and over again. They, the church will drift. The culture influences uh, the direction of the church. Political powers begin to control the church, and then the church requires correction. That's what we saw during the Reformation. In fact, the Reformation is one of many Reformations that have happened in the church. Faithful men throughout history have had to fight and stand on the Word of God in order to reform and correct the church many times in church history. Hence the expression that I personally identify with is semper reformunda, or always reforming, because we always are. We're always having to reform the church as it begins to drift away from center. And that's what we see today, and that's what, what we saw 500 years ago in the Reformation, but it's also what we see in this letter 2,000 years ago. Paul calls a faithful man to, to reform the church that has, that has drifted away and fallen prey to the culture and fallen prey to Caesar or the government. And I believe that this is why it is such an appropriate letter for us today. And so today we're going to begin to walk through this letter together in an effort to continually reform the church so that we can stay centered on the gospel and the word of God. And it is our mission to be and remain the church that God has called us to. Now, before we jump into the text, let me just talk about the purpose that, of why he wrote this letter, because the purpose of this letter actually is the foundation of our understanding of this entire letter, and Paul was gracious enough to tell us very clearly why he wrote the letter. In fact, in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, in, in beginning in verse 14, he writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things. I'm writing this letter. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul tells Timothy, the reason why, the reason for this letter is so that you know, that you will know how people ought to behave in the church. You see, this is a letter about the order and the operation of the church. It's about how the church is to be conducted and how people are to conduct themselves in the church. This letter is a plan and a blueprint for the church itself, hence the the cute little artwork that we came up with. 
Paul is saying, I'm writing this to you so that you will know that how people are to live and act in the church and, and to live and act as the church in the world. And there's a lot that we can talk about in this particular text, but we'll save that for when we get to chapter 3. But there is a foundational truth in this statement here that you all need to see with me. And it's a truth that you need to understand, and it's a truth that you need to embrace from the very beginning as we make our way through this letter. I want you to look at what Paul says again. I'm going to emphasize this. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Notice the language. It's the household of God and the church of the living God. What is this communicating to us? It's communicating the essential truth right? that I believe many of us Christians forget, the truth that is lost when we drift as the church. And it's the truth that the church belongs to God. That's the truth that Paul is communicating there. It is God's church. Right? The church belongs to Him. It is His church. Which means... It's not your church. Now hear me. You belong to the church as a member of the body of Christ, but the church doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. It is His church. He is the one who empowers it. He is the one who created it. He is the one who thought it up. He is the one who wields it as an instrument in the world around us. And that means He alone determines the church's purpose. He alone determines the church's mission. He alone determines how the church is made up and how the church is to operate. That's what that means. God and His Word is the authority that defines for us what the church is and what the church does and how the church is supposed to work. God determines for us all of these things. And I want you to know, this is a critical truth for us because all of us tend to view, and I'm telling all of us, I'm talking about me, all of us tend to view the church through the lens of us. We view the church from our own perspective, right? And we all have opinions about the church and how the church should be run and how the church is to act, right? And I'm going to tell you that many of our opinions about the church, including where I've come from, many of those opinions are centered on man and not on God himself. And we all have all kinds of opinions. And many of you have opinions. You know how I know? It's because people tell me all the time their opinions about the church. All the time! I think the church should do this. Oh, really? Okay, thank you. I think the church should have this kind of a Bible study. I think that the church should be meeting, you know, this particular set of needs for this particular group of people. I think we need to sing fewer songs. I think we need to sing more songs. I think we need to sing old hymns. I think we need to sing more new songs. I think that we should have Sunday school before we have worship service. I don't think that we need two services because I can't see everybody. And since I can't see everybody, I don't think a reason there should be a reason for us to have two services. I think that your sermons are too long. I think we should have responsive reading, reading like we used to. I think we should be using that old trusty King James Bible. I think we need to have an invitation after every service where people can come forward to the, to the, to the altar. We all, every one of us have opinions and we think, right, we know how things are to be in the church. But if I could be 
genuine and real with you, right? Because you know I love you, right? What you think and what I think, our personal opinions about this are irrelevant. Even if those opinions are based on experience, and even those opinions are based on 80 years of church tradition, and based on how we have always done things, and even if it's how we grew up, and how grandma says things need to be, and how our church still does things, all of our opinions are absolutely irrelevant if they're not founded and built on the Word of God itself. Why? Because the church doesn't belong to us. The church belongs to God. It is His church, and it is to be built and operated how He says for it to be operated. And everything we do in the church needs to be done in accordance to the Word of God. That's the foundational principle that we must build our entire theology of the church on. That's the foundation of our entire theology of the church. The church belongs to God, and He determines what the church is, what the church is for, and what the church does. And it's our job to conform our minds and hearts to His Word. This is the truth we need to keep our minds fixed on as we move forward. Now, with that then, with that settled, let us approach the text in 1 Timothy, beginning in verse 1. And I'll go quickly through this. That's why there's only two verses this morning. In 1 Timothy, Paul introduces himself and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul very clearly makes known who he is, but notice he identifies also his office. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is an apostle of of the Messiah, Jesus. Now, the word apostle generically can be used as a messenger and sometimes can be used as someone who is sent on a mission or it can be used as a special envoy at the command of someone else. All of those things are true of that word, and all of those things are true of Paul. And you can even say those things are all true of all of us believers. But understand, when Paul uses this word, he is not using this word in the generic sense that we would think about it. He is using this word in a specific, special sense. He is referring to the God-ordained office of apostle, an office that was reserved for and given to a small group of specific men in history a group of men specifically selected by God to start the church and to record the apostolic teachings for all future generations. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but we need to think theologically about a couple of things and confirm a couple of things in our thinking as we move forward. Number one, there are no more and will be no more apostles the way Paul is describing in, in this term after the death of John the apostle. There are no new apostles with special revelation from God. The LDS church claims to have living apostles right now, that that there are men that continually rise up and are living apostles on the same level of the apostle John. This is just flagrantly a false teaching. It's a false theology. There are no new living apostles. Now, there are some people in the hyper, and I I want to stress this, hyper-charismatic movement that claim to walk in a special apostolic authority, and they call themselves by the name apostle, and they mean it like big A apostle like the apostle Paul. Again, it's a flagrant false teaching. There are no new living apostles that way that have the equivalence of Peter, James, and John. So if somebody says, I'm an apostle, you say, I'm sorry, I'll call you a friend or or whatever, but that is just, I I can't apply that, that term to you. Number two, 
The doctrine of apostolic succession practiced by the Catholic Church is likewise a false teaching and a misunderstanding of Scripture. The Apostle Peter was not the first pope in Rome, and he didn't take all his power and authority and hand it off to the next guy, who handed it off to the next guy, to the next guy, to the next guy, all the way. There's no historical case to make for that, by the way. You can't prove it in history, and it's certainly not a scriptural thing. There's no such teaching in Scripture as apostolic authority. Right? The apostolic authority that we have is right here in the Word of God. That's why we preach and proclaim sola scriptura. That's why. Now, why would Paul begin with this phrase then? Announcing his office. Paul has that ability to do so. Why would he have to tell Timothy? Well, he announces his office so that Timothy and all the other readers who might read the letter that he gives them will understand that Paul has a God-given specific authority to give direction to Timothy and to the church. Notice Paul says, an apostle of Christ by command of God. Paul makes it clear that his authority as an apostle has not been given to him by other men. His authority did not come from the culture. His authority did not come from religion. His authority comes directly from God himself. God himself has personally invested Paul with this authority. In fact, he says that it was by the command of God. And again, I want you to hold on to this. Because in most of of the letters that, that Paul writes, he says by the will of God that he's an apostle. An apostle by the will of God. Almost in every other letter he says that, by the will of God. But in this letter, he says to Timothy, by the command of God. Now, why would he change that and write it that way? Because Paul is about to write a very difficult letter to Timothy, and he's going to give him firm orders and commands to do what needs to be done in the church to make that church right. And Paul is making it clear that he has the authority from God to make those commands because he himself is commanded by God. This is a very military kind of expression. He is letting Timothy know that there is a, a hierarchy here that comes from God to Paul to Timothy. And basically what Paul is saying is, I'm telling you this so that you know that God himself is speaking to you. Paul has the special ability to be able to reveal the Word of God. That's why we have his letters. Now, what we need to see here is Paul is making it clear that not only does the church belong to God, but there's also the truth that the authority of those who lead the church comes from God. All authority intrinsically comes from God, and all authority in the church originates with God. Paul is saying that God, by God's command, I am an apostle, and by His command, I'm writing this letter to you, and by His command, you are obligated to obey and follow these directions. And by extension, Timothy, because you have been commanded to do this, you have the authority to do what needs to be done inside of that church. All leadership authority in the church originates with God and is from God. You see, God has invested His authority in the church through His Word and those He calls to leadership. God has invested His authority for leadership of the church into pastors or elders in the church. In fact, they are referred to in this letter as overseers as well as elders or pastors. And they are tasked with the ordering and the operating of the church in a manner that's consistent with the Word of God. Which is why it is so important that those who are leadership in in the church are legitimately called and are legitimately qualified for the office. That's why the qualifications, by the way, are in there. 
is that we as a church would, would take that seriously before we would lay hands on someone and appoint them to the office of elder or deacon or whatever, that we would look seriously at what the Word of God says about those qualifications and measure them according to that standard. Now, we're going to talk more about that in chapter 3 when we get to the qualifications of elders and pastors, but suffice it to say that the church is God's, and God is the one who is the source of authority, and He's invested His authority in the church through His Word and through the elders and the pastors that He calls. But also notice Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior. One of these things that if you read in English, you're going to, it would be so easy to miss, all right? Because it seems like a very normal thing to find in the Scriptures, right? The sense that God is our Savior. Like we, we would see that and go, praise the Lord. That's like a doxology almost, right? But actually, Paul wrote it that way for a specific reason. You see, the expression, God, our Savior, carries with it a lot of Old Testament theology. But it also, there's a context that carries with it a political message to Timothy. I don't know if you realize that. This is a political message to Timothy. Because in first century Rome, among the titles that were given to Caesar was Lord and Savior. I don't know if you realize that. But Caesar was to be declared by his subjects to be Lord and Savior. Paul is making a political statement here. And so what Paul is saying is God is Savior. God is the sovereign not Caesar, not the government. And this is important for us because many people have said that Christians are always bound to always obey the law. Romans 13, they will cite that and say, you have to do it, right? But they forget the fact that Paul himself was arrested again and was left in a dungeon to rot. And then finally they cut his head off and martyring him. Why? Because he was an enemy of the state. Because he would not bow the knee to Caesar. And the reason is, is Paul knows who his sovereign is. He obeys God and not man. Now, the implications of what he's saying here is this, the rule of the church. Right? What he's saying here is the rule of the church belongs to God and not Caesar. The rule of the church is not the government. The rule of the church is not the will of the people. The rule of the church is not your culture. The rule of the church belongs to God and God alone. He is the final authority. God is the sovereign of the church. His word trumps the law, no matter what the rationale is. This is the truth that so many people have lost sight of when they're celebrating the closing of churches like Grace Life. The pastor of that church was attempting to the best of his ability to honor the word of God and to follow his command. And, and they were not being defiant for the sake of being defiant. Believe me. He didn't want to be disobedient for the sake of dis dis being disobedient. In fact, all of the churches who've gotten in trouble in this part of the world, every one of them will have preached over and over again messages about being good citizens and obeying the law and paying your taxes and doing what's right and rendering under Caesar what is Caesar's. All of them would, would, would exhort all of us to be patient and loving and long-suffering and caring and be good citizens. So he wasn't being defiant for the sake of being defiant. He was doing the best he could to love his church as he believed God was leading him to. Right? They were staying open because they were convicted with all their hearts that God has commanded his church to meet for worship. And they were committed to obey that, even if it meant the government or Caesar coming down on them with the law. 
Paul makes it clear the ultimate authority of the church is God. And he also makes it clear that God is, is also the church's only hope. Notice what he says next. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul makes it clear that the hope of the church and the hope of the individual Christian is not the government, it is not the culture. The hope of the church and the world itself is Jesus Christ. He is the only hope that we have. It is Him that we must seek after with all of our hearts. It is Him we must follow and obey. Even if the culture comes after us with hatefulness, even if our neighbor turns on us and celebrates our arrest and persecution, even if our government forbids us to worship and hauls us away and takes us takes away our buildings and all of our land, Christ is still going to be our only hope. And because of that, there is nothing that you can do to us that will keep us from worshiping God the way that He calls us to. You see, when you have nothing to lose, they have nothing to take from you. The church belongs to God. All authority comes from Him, and our ultimate hope is in Him. And then he says to Timothy, my true friend in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, notice again the affirmation of Jesus being the Lord and not Caesar, right? Twice in two verses, Paul makes a political statement. God is Savior, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Right? But also notice the connection between discipleship between Timothy and Paul. We're going to spend more time talking about this, but what I want you to realize is this is where we need to be investing ourselves and other people. We should have close relationships like this, that we should be discipling other believers to where we have intimate, close relationships where we're building them up in the faith, almost like a father-son, mother-daughter type of relationship. But the thing I want you to notice is Paul's greeting here, and this is where I want to kind of land today. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God. And there's two things we need to realize. As we can see that it basically the church is God's. The authority is from Him. The hope is in Him, right? But the thing that you see here is that blessings ultimately come from God. All of our blessings, right? Mercy, His special help, His grace, His unmerited favor, and His peace, the, the shalom, that peace surpasses all understanding. All of those things for those in Christ are blessings from God. All blessings inside the church are from God. That's why we need to make the church always about God. But the second thing I want you to see is this. Paul usually opens his letters with the greeting of grace and peace. Always grace and peace. I don't know if you noticed that. It's his customary greeting, right? And, and there's a reason for that. Because grace is the customary Greek greeting, and peace or shalom is the Hebrew greeting. And so he uses these two together always, right? And he does this why? Well, first of all, I believe he does it for unity's sake. He's reminding people that the Jews and the Gentiles have been blended together into one family, right? But it's also a reminder of the beauty of the grace that we need and the peace we have with God because of the grace of God, right? But I want you to notice he includes this word mercy here. Why? Why in this letter? Well, I think it's because Pastor, because he, because the, Pastor Timothy was tasked 
with a very difficult job of reforming a church in an influential city, he was going to need God's mercy. Right? Timothy was a young pastor, and he had a big job ahead of him, and he was going to need God's special help, his mercy, because he was not going to, he, because he was going to have to faithfully stand against the culture. He was going to have to faithfully stand against the governments. He was going to have to even stand against some of the people in his own church to do what was right by the Lord to shepherd that church. Timothy needed God's mercy. And here's the thing, I think, as we turn the corner on this. Pastors and elders and leaders in the church, even children's directors and other leaders in the church, all of us ministering in a world like ours have a tough job. All of us have a difficult time having to deal with the culture that's pressing in on us in every possible way. And all of us are in the way of Caesar at some point or another. My exhortation for that, or I want to bring you to, is this. We need to be mindful of the mercy we need to do life together as a church and the mercy that the leaders in the church need as they're doing their very best to do right by you and by, right by God. And my encouragement to you is pray. Pray. Number one, pray for pastors all around the world because they need it. Every single day doing a job that, nobody, that very few people know what it's like to do. Doing a job feeling alone in a way that people don't understand what alone is. Doing a job where they have to continually put the needs of others in front of them. Doing a job where they have to continually prepare even when their hearts are broken and having to carry burdens for other people. Doing a job that seems like it will never end and at times well, things will never get better. Pray for the mercy of God upon pastors. But pray for the mercy of God upon ministry leaders. because. Pastors like me get to do this for a full-time job. Praise the Lord for that. But there are a lot of ministry leaders who have to work a job but also then prepare the set list and prepare the curriculum for the kids and do all the other work. Pray for the leaders of the church that they would be submissive to God's calling in their life, but also that they would have the power and the strength to carry on. We need, as a church family, to be a people of prayer who are praying for the leaders in this church. Because I want you to understand Leading a church where God wants to go can be one of the diff most difficult jobs in the world. I'll say that very openly and candidly. I'm going to tell you there are times I think to myself, man, this would just be so much easier if I was just like one of them guys that just came up here and just wanted to tell you a couple Bible verses and make you feel good about how things are and then send you out the door, smile on your face, you know what I mean? This would be so much easier if, if, if my theology of God was a little bit lower where I didn't have to wrestle with some of the harder things, the difficult things of the scriptures, and have to stand before you and really you know, walk through those things and challenge you. My life would be so much easier if we just sang the, the really ma man-centered songs and everybody just was like, that music is so great and I feel so good. Now let's, let's go on the rest of our, our week. But I want you to know, like, that, was what I, that wasn't what I was called to. I was called to give the very best of myself to you through the Word of God, which means I'm going to always tell you the truth, which means sometimes, sometimes it's going to be hard, but I want you to know this is the greatest thing I've ever done in my life. Bless you. <laughs>
And I'm committed to semper reformunda or continually reforming our little church and making sure that every one of us stand centered on the gospel and the scriptures. Now, with that, let me give you let me give you four things that I think that you should think about and maybe apply to your life. Number one is we need all of us to submit to God's ownership of the church. I think for me, that was one of the places I just had to land a few years ago is that it's not my church. It's not my vision. It's not what I think should happen. It's not what I like. It's what God ordains. And it has been our mission here piece by piece, bit by bit, to examine everything that we do at First Baptist Church and ask, is this biblical? Is this centered on God? Notice that we start worship with a call to worship. We do all the other worldly things before that. Once we start worshiping, we stay worshiping until we're done. Submit to God's ownership of the church. Secondly, submit to God's authority in the church. And I'm going to tell you, as Americans, this is a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. right? Because what we want is... Everybody loves the pastor when, they're, when he's saying things that, that, that they like and he's not convicting them. But you let the pastor say something that kind of ruffles feathers and suddenly it's like, hey, you know what? There's like five other churches. I'm going to go to a different one, right? Not realizing they're taking their same attitude problem with them to, to that other church. What I want you to realize is my job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to tell you what the Word of God says and encourage you to live it, right? What you do with it is going to be your business. But if I call you to live it, just understand I'm doing it out of love, not because I really care to be in the middle of your business, because I'm telling you half the time I don't want to be. Right? That's one of the things about being a pastor is I've, I thought that being a pastor was preaching every Sunday. Being a pastor is preaching every Sunday and then having to really help people untangle some really difficult problems. And praise the Lord, He's given me the grace for that and the love for people for that. But I'm telling you, that's one of those areas that could be really, really sticky. Number three, trust in the hope of the church, right? I think all of us need to remind ourselves of this daily. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? Our hope is not built on what our boss can do for us. Our hope is not built on the economy keeping going. Our hope is not built on our military having enough might to keep us from being invaded. Our hope is not built on the next presidential election that everybody is looking forward to now, right? Our hope is not built on our neighbors and our friends. Our hope is not even built on our families, though we love them and depend on them. Our hope is built simply and solely on Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. You are a sinner condemned to die, and you willfully sinned against God and rebelled against Him. And you could do nothing of your own accord to make it right. But God, in His grace and mercy, in His Son, Jesus Christ, lived a life that you couldn't live to to secure for you a righteousness that's not your own and to die in your place, to give you new life, and that if you repent and believe the gospel, you will be saved. That is your hope. So trust in the hope of the church as things continually grow difficult. And then again, finally, number four, pray. Pray for the leaders of the church. And I'm not talking about just the pastor. I mean, certainly pray for the pastor, absolutely. But pray for, for the deacons. What you don't realize is the deacons do a lot of stuff around here. They help people. They love on people. It's just an invisible job for a lot of people. Pray also for the teachers and the individual ministry leaders. There's lots of things that happen in the church that you might not know about. Pray that God's will will be done in their lives. Pray that they would have the heart to continue to serve. And then pray that God's church would rise in this community and be an example of the hope for the rest of the world. 
You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.